All right. So uh, once again, if you've got a handout, you can go uh, and, and pull that up. What I'm going to try to do here is I am going to kind of try to take over your screen somewhat and help you um, see this. Okay. So hopefully, can, can we all see the New Testament survey graphic? You good? Yes. Awesome. Way to go, people. Um, so what we'll do here, um, we started this, we did three weeks back in March, um, you know, a few years ago, whenever that was. Uh, but we talked about a little bit of how um, some of the overall objectives of the New Testament. And then we looked at the uh, initial uh, Bryce did a great thing about how the Bible was put together and also some apologetics of how we know that, um, the, how the Bible's um, comprised and whatnot. Then we spent one week where we kind of did that overview of the Bible, looked the whole thing. And then the last four weeks, we've been doing the Ask Pastor Trav stuff online. And so not knowing exactly how many more weeks we'll be going through something like this, I wanted to give us an opportunity just to go ahead and start this uh, to make sure we're at least going through um, our, our stuff as we go together. So I'm going to make sure there's a couple others that are popping in here. So make sure we get everybody. Um, but let me go ahead and I'm going to start uh, the first thing there. Uh, make sure, let me pull this over. It might be easiest. Can everybody still see that? Yes. Okay, good. All right. So the so Bible is made up of two units, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Once again, that's kind of common information for a lot of people that, that know that. We want to make sure that that's something that we're also aware of, that the Bible's made up of uh, two units, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Testament means covenant. So that's the first section of the Bible describes the Old Covenant, while the second section describes the New Covenant ushered in uh, by the coming of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at this, this is just once again, just a reminder of what we've already gone through. But when you see the words Testament, you are looking at a, a place where it says covenant. So there's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they'll, they'll specifically speak about a time when a new covenant was to come. And that's obviously ushered in through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, read as a complete work, these 66 books in the Bible, right? 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. They deliver one message of God's redemption through the person and work of Jesus um, I'm not going to make anybody recite all 66 books uh, tonight because I know some of you could, right? Or at least we could start. What's the first book of the Bible, everybody? Genesis. You guys are doing great. The last Genesis. book of the Bible, anybody want to go for it? Revelation. Revelation. There you go. And then there's 64 in the middle of it, right? So there's some other ones that we would definitely get into. Uh, but they're all really delivering one message of God's redemption through the person and work of Jesus. And the New Testament can be broken down. Uh, into the narratives, which uh, comprise the first five books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, as well as the letters. And that is Romans through Revelation. So a real simple way to look at the 27 books in the New Testament is just that. It's the narratives and the letters. So it's the Matthew through Acts and then Romans through Revelation. But another way to separate them is by the Gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, other letters, and Revelation. So as we look at this, that is a way that people can look at that the first four books of the Bible, the Gospels, then there's the book of Acts, is the only other narrative portion really in the New Testament. So the first five books are narrative, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And then there's a bunch of letters that go out, and they're all comprised as we look in the, um, as we look in your table of contents, there's going to be Paul's letters, then it's going to go into everybody else's letters. And the way that these letters are put together, does anybody remember why they are in the order they're in? Anybody? By length, smallest. Yeah, it's all by length, right? So it's the kind of the, the longest to the um, shortest of uh, starting of Paul's and then going into um, everybody else. And then Revelation is kind of this unique thing because it is, uh, in that sense, it is a letter. Uh, it's just a different type of letter. It's the type of letter that makes you have nightmares and can't go to sleep at night. So um, now well, you've got this little um, diagram, and I want to kind of make sure that we, we can go through this together to, to see this. But um, this is just kind of a way that maybe we can look at it to, to understand how these um, whole New Testament structure goes together. So we, we'll start off with the Gospels, right? Matthew, 
Mark, Luke, and John. So these are all four biographies um, of the story of Jesus. And so Jesus didn't write a book about himself. He wrote, uh, but four guys did write a book about him. Now, if you look at those four names, two of those names were a part of the original disciples, okay? I don't want you to make an answer yet. I just want you to think about it. So two of those, two of those names were part of the original 12 disciples, and those would be Matthew and John, okay? So Matthew and John were two of the original disciples. Mark uh, was a later, or um, it's believed that Mark was kind of one of the outlying disciples. So in the New Testament, sometimes Jesus would talk about the disciples, and it would mean the 12 main guys. And then sometimes the disciples meant the hundreds of folks that followed him, right? The students and whatnot. So Mark was one of those hundreds. So he was kind of locked in into a lot of different, uh, and, and the bigger group. Uh, and he was a companion of Peter. Uh, a lot of people believe that he got most of his information from walking with Peter. John Mark also, um, his full name was John Mark. He would spend a lot of time um, with Paul. And, uh, and then there was a couple of times where he left Paul's missionary journeys. And so Paul got kind of sick and tired of him. He thought he was a little bit uh, um, too soft. And so one time Mark wanted to go back with him and Paul didn't want to go, want him to go back. He was tired of it. And uh, there was like one guy who believed in him. His name was Barnabas. Uh, and Barnabas wanted Mark to go, but Paul didn't want Mark to go. So Mark kind of just goes along uh, throughout a lot of this. And, and it's really interesting how all this stuff works together. Um, and then Luke comes along, and Luke is the only Gentile out of these four, and uh, the only Gentile. So out of this, there are four, you know, um, gospel writers, and in a Jewish context, there was always Jewish and Gentiles, right? It's us and everybody else. Mm -hmm. And so this uh, was written in the context that Matthew, Mark, and John were Jewish men who converted to Christianity, but were ethnically Jewish. That didn't change Luke was not a Jew. Uh, and then also Luke, what makes his gospel a little bit uh, interesting, does anybody remember what Luke's occupation was? Anybody? Physician. Yep, he was a physician. He was a doctor, so which is really helpful for the Apostle Paul because he was always getting beat up and bitten by snakes and all that kind of stuff. So it's good to have a doctor around for Paul. Uh, but these four guys wrote, and um, we're going we're gonna to dive into this a little bit more next week. But one of the most interesting things about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is, is that sometimes people would wonder, well, why, why do we even need four Gospels? Because sometimes you'll read some passages, say, out of like Matthew and Mark, and it almost seems identical. So why is somebody copying from one another? Is there a reason to have both in there? And the reason was, uh, is that there was a, um, just imagine if all of us were out there on Woodruff Road. And one of us is in the church parking lot. One of us is in the cookout parking lot. One of us is closer over there to Taco Bell. And one of us is over there at, um, whatchamacallit, Firehouse Subs, okay? So if we're all in that place here for a second, if we have that situation and then all of a sudden we're on Woodruff Road and we see a car crash that happens and the end result's the same, right? We see these cars have collided. But from our vantage point, we see things a little bit differently. So some of us may say, you know what? I see this over here. Or I see that over there. And uh, we can see certain things. And so if you put all four of our versions or all four of our vantage points together, the story is a little bit clearer. But when you also look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were writing to very different audiences. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this next week. But Matthew was writing... Uh, to a Jewish audience. And that's why I think he's the first book in the New Testament because um, there are so many things that is mentioned about him. In fact, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter one for a quick, quick second. Um, Matthew chapter one. Um, and I want to show you something to, to reveal to you why I think that Matthew probably was the first um, book in the uh, New Testament because of its connections, honestly, to the Old Testament. So when you start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, when the first thing out of the statement uh, or the first thing out of a book is this, um, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, that is showing you that what they're wanting to do 
is, is to try to reveal and say, look, this is connected here. And I would never think that writing a book that the best way to get everybody's attention is to start with a genealogy. Okay. But Matthew does. And he says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he's connecting. So what's about to happen in the New Testament to the Old Testament? Um, look down at chapter 1, verse 23. I'm going to read verse 23, but I want you to notice how it's written in your Bible. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So we've heard that before, and that's a very familiar verse that we read at Christmas time. What does what looks different in your Bible about Matthew 1, verse 23? Anybody? His name Emmanuel. Yeah, the name's Emmanuel. But do you, do you notice anything about just how maybe it's typed in there? Or oh, it's, uh, yeah, it's bold letters, capital bold letters, capital bold letters. Uh, it's probably indented. Parenthesis. Yeah, yeah, it's indented in, in your Bible. So if you look down, you probably have a footnote somewhere, even if you don't have a study Bible, that will say something like this. You probably can figure out that's an Old Testament quotation that Matthew is doing. Can anybody, if you look in your footnote there, can you find out where Matthew is quoting from? Isaiah 7, 14. Yeah, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So in, in your Bible, and I want you to think through that, you're going to see that any time in your Bible that that is kind of indented or in bold letters, however your uh, copy of God's Word does, you're noticing something. He's saying, I'm quoting from the Old Testament here. Now, you may just turn the page, but what do you see in chapter 2, verse 6? You see it again, don't you? Yeah. He's indenting. He is uh, coming along, and now he is actually uh, quoting uh, down there from um, uh, Micah 5.2. If you go down to, in fact, if you just start scanning these pages, you're going to notice something. In chapter 2, verse 18, there's another Old Testament quotation. Chapter 3, verse 3, another Old Testament quotation. Chapter 4, verse 4, another Old Testament quotation. There are so many different Old Testament quotations that he goes from. In fact, if you just skim the book of Matthew, you're going to see that indention of these first few pages a whole lot. So one of the reasons why I think Matthew is the first one there in the New Testament is it's really connecting what happened in the Old Testament to what's happening in the New Testament. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and he wanted to prove to them this is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. This is who we've been looking for, and you can find him right here, okay? And so that was kind of his, his goal in all of um, writing that out. Now, Mark is next. Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, uh, and he has a lot of uh, similar material, but Mark wrote to a Roman audience. And if you know anything about the Roman Colosseum back in those days— they like action. They like adventure. They like fights. They like, you know, putting people against dogs and letting them go at it, right? So Mark doesn't spend a whole lot of time. He doesn't write out the Sermon on the Mount because he's writing to that Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire doesn't have time to sit around and listen to a bunch of speeches. They want to know action. What did Jesus do next? And that's why Mark's, one of his favorite words in his gospel is the word immediately, because this happened next, this happened next, and this happened next, Right. And so then you get to Luke, and Luke is very different because he writes to a Gentile audience, a, a Gentile audience. And so what's so unique is that sometimes what Matthew and Luke say will be the same thing, but there'll be certain words that will be different. Um, give you an example. In Luke, whenever he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he says in Luke. Okay, He'll say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand quoting Jesus. But if you go to the book of Matthew, Matthew says something very, very different. Jesus will be the one speaking, and it says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, and you go, whoa, whoa, Matthew, why would you write kingdom of heaven if Luke is saying kingdom of God? Did Jesus say something different? What's going on there? Well, Jesus may have said it in, in both of those ways, or Matthew may have changed something because of his audience. Matthew was writing to Jewish men and women, and if you think through it, one of the top ten commandments to the Jewish people that they try to hold so dear was what? Don't take God's name in vain, right? So, so this is the picture. So, so 
a lot of times when Luke would say kingdom of God, Matthew will say kingdom of heaven because he doesn't want those people to trip up on that, right? So Luke is writing from a, a Gentile audience idea, and he doesn't care. He just like getting after it, right? He's going to say it the way he is. He is a doctor. He's analytical. He's going to fill in the details. He really likes to go and look at some of the healing stuff. And then John is right, written many, many years later by Jesus's best friend. And it's really written to non-Christians. He writes in such a way to say, hey, I want you to um, just see that Jesus is the Christ and I want you to believe on him. So those are the four Gospels. The next section of the Old Testament is what I'll call the narrative section. While the Gospels have been narrative about the life of Jesus, we now get to the book of Acts, the only other book in the New Testament that is narrative, which means it's kind of like a story format. And I, I put these together here uh, underneath the guy who wrote it, but who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Luke did, right? So Luke wrote Acts. And in fact, if you read Luke and then Acts, it feels like it's two volumes of one book. It just, it flows together. It's wonderful. It's very analytical, but you can just feel um, it's like that the book of Acts literally just picks up where Luke left off. He's saying, okay, Jesus ascended, but the work of Jesus continued to go through the Acts of the Apostles, or some people would say instead of the Acts of the Apostles, they would call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, because throughout the book of Luke, he keeps saying, Holy Spirit's enabling these guys to do this, right? He, oh, there is so much. If, if these disciples are doing anything in the name of Jesus, it's because the Holy Spirit is in them. And so if you look at the um, New Testament, though, you realize this. There's only four out of the, I mean, five out of the 27 books are narrative in format. And then the rest of them are something called epistles. And so we're going to look at it this way because um, they're either called letters or epistles. Um, and these are just simply, they are letters that are written to a group of people or to an individual. Um, and that is a huge majority of our New Testament. And as this first column is showing us is that uh, right here, this first section of epistles is written by a guy by the name of Paul. Okay, so it's written to Paul, uh, written by Paul, and he's writing the first section, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, then 1 and 2 Thessalonians. All of these are written to what? Two actual churches, okay? And once again, what makes this a little bit challenging, I'm going to show you something in a little bit that will help us uh, understand this. But um, these, these letters are not uh, written or they're not put in your Bible in chronological order. They are written in the longest to the shortest. So Romans was not the first letter that Paul wrote. Uh, I think that the first letter that Paul ever wrote was a book called Galatians right here. Uh, and, and we'll sort of explain why that is here in just a little bit. But so this first batch of letters is Romans to Second Thessalonians were written by Paul. The, the second batch are not written just to, church, to churches, but they're written to leaders. And so these letters are written specifically to leaders. And uh, these are also continued, to, um, was written by Paul. But 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, these are often called the pastoral epistles because Timothy and Titus were pastors. They were pastors that Paul had mentored and discipled and set loose. And so just imagine that uh, we that he would send someone out and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to send out a letter to a, a young man in the ministry who just started out. Uh, and as pastoring can be difficult or following Jesus can be difficult, he would write a letter to these Romans or the Corinthians or the Galatians and say, here's how I want to help you guys. I've heard this going on in your church. But then for Timothy and Titus, he would speak specifically to these men as leaders within the church. Now, one thing to notice about this is, once again, they're not in order as far as chronological, the timeline. They're in an order of size, Romans being the largest, right, and Philemon uh, being the shortest of Paul's. But also, these are written to churches. These, this section here are written to leaders. Um, I think, once again, the first letter that Paul ever wrote was the letter of Galatians. And I think the last letter he ever wrote was the letter of Second Timothy. Um, so if we look at Galatians, what's happening here is he is very, very upset 
because he feels like the apostle Peter and some other guys are putting hurdles in front of people to accepting the gospel. A lot of Jewish Christians were wanting people to become Jewish before he would have let them become Christian. And Paul was mad. He was frustrated. In fact, he uses some some very strong speech in that letter to say, ah, that, that's not going to happen here anymore, right? Like that, there's no way that's not the gospel. And then, and then you get to letters like, say, First and Second Corinthians. Now, those churches were messed up, okay? Like they could be on Mari Povich right now, okay, with all their issues and dysfunction. They just had issue upon issue. And so these letters are, okay, I've heard this is going on in your congregation, and I need to address this, right? And so he's very specific about sin. And then you get to a letter like Philippians that we're going through right now. And, and Paul just loves these people. He, he just is always speaking about how great they are and how much he loves them. He can't wait to see them again. And there's just different vibes for each one. For, for Timothy, once again, here's a letter to his mentor, mentee, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Titus is another one. And I put Philemon down here uh, across from Colossians because... Philemon was a guy that was a part of the Colossian, of the Colossian church. So while this is the next in order, um, you're going to hear some names in Philemon that he also mentions in Colossians. So just imagine in, in this sense that if, if the Apostle Paul had written a letter to the church at Rocky Creek, it'd be over here in this column. And if he wrote a letter right here specifically to Keith, this would be over here in this column, right? So there's going to be specific individuals. And so Philemon there is connected there to Colossians, okay? So these letters, the first group, two churches, the next one, two leaders, and then we're going to get to this next section, which are written two groups of people. Um, and these are not written by Paul, but just other people. And so let's go through these because they are, once again, organized from Hebrews, the longest, to Jude, which is the shortest. Um, here is the deal is that nobody really is sure of who wrote the book of Hebrews. That is the one unknown author in the New Testament. There's a lot of theories about who wrote it. Um, some people think that Paul wrote it. Uh, and, um, but I would just say this, for someone who uh, will read the original language in which these guys read, it does not, when you read the Greek language, it doesn't appear like Paul is, is writing this at all. It feels like somebody different. It doesn't feel like Luke or Acts. It's somebody who's who really has gone to school and they know how they know their grammar very, very well. And they know some big words very, very well. And so we really don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews other than it's a great book. It's, it stood the test of time. It was spread throughout the early church and benefits to us today. Uh, James is one of the more popular New Testament books just because of, I think, the ease and simplicity of the content in which he wrote. Um, First Peter and Second Peter, written by a guy by the name of, you might want to guess? Peter. Peter, you guys are doing great. Okay, so, so Peter wrote this, uh, and uh, these were really written to groups of people, the, the dispersed believers abroad. And then First John, Second John, Third John uh, are also letters written by the Apostle John. And then Jude is the smallest of these letters, written by a guy by the name of Jude. And in fact, if you look at this, there are two people, while we mentioned here earlier, Matthew uh, and John, they were uh, two of the original disciples. So they knew Jesus up close and very, very personal. But there are two other uh, gentlemen on this um, group who knew Jesus very, very personal in a different way, not because they were originally a disciple, but because they were actually his brothers. And that is the person of James and the person of Jude. So James and Jude were the actual brothers of Jesus. Now, what's interesting about that is um, James is possibly the first letter, the first book that was ever written in the New Testament. Uh, and, and one of the things that's interesting about it is um, the first thing he says is James, a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I was writing a book and I wanted people to read it and my brother, my big brother was Jesus, I would go ahead and tell you my big brother is Jesus. And I wrote a book. You should read it. Right. And he says, I am a bond servant 
of this Jesus. And then Jude uses the same language. Now, this is one of the biggest reasons that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, because uh, I have a sibling, my older sister, and I think it would take a pretty miraculous thing for her to think I was the Messiah, okay? She would have to be really super impressed for her to think that I'm somehow the Messiah. She's lived with me all my life and, and grown up and seen the, the worst of me. Uh, that would be pretty difficult for her to see. So James and Jude are people that they are actual brothers of Jesus, and yet they are following Jesus as he is Lord in the early days of the church. And then finally, we have one more that is kind of, it is a letter in the sense of the others are a letter, but it's a very different letter. That is the book of what? Revelation. Revelation. Okay. Now, you notice something on here that I'm trying to color coordinate this somewhat. All these blues are written by Paul. Um, this color green here represents the one guy who wrote these five books. His name is? John. John right? So John wrote John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Finally, he had a really good name for a title and called the fifth one Revelation. Okay. Uh, but so the, the book of John up here is an actual gospel. This speaks, that tells the story of Jesus's life. These letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, are, lit, are written to believers to encourage them to stay faithful in hard times. The book of Revelation is very different than any of the other 26 books in the New Testament. Um, here's, here's what I know about everybody that's here tonight. You either love to study the book of Revelation or you love to hide from the book of Revelation. It is challenging. <laughs> it is difficult. It is hard to read. It's hard to understand. Uh, and yet, um, out of these disciples uh, that are mentioned on this board, uh, Matthew, John, uh, Peter, out of these guys, all these guys were um, put or martyred for their faith. Uh, but John happened a little bit different. Matthew died uh, a, a, a martyr's death. Peter did. Paul did. But John actually uh, survived a being burned alive in a vat of burning oil. He was put in there because they told him that if he didn't stop preaching the resurrection, they were going to kill him. And he said, good luck. And they put him in a vat of burning oil and he survived it. And it, it scared the officials so much. So they basically put him on an island called Patmos, which was kind of like a, back in those days, like a, imagine Alcatraz. This is just a, a um, island for prisoners to go there and die. And when he's on this island, as an older man, he has a revelation of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is showing him the things to come. And he says, you better write this down because this is going to happen. And so John writes this letter as one of the last things in his life, but it is a very unique and honestly somewhat scary letter at times because he's saying, Hey, it's going to get bad, but don't worry. Jesus is going to come back. And what's beautiful about this is you got to think this early church, as these guys are all walking through this, they are living in some of the most horrific times and they are dying for their faith, being in prison for their faith. And so John's message uh, that he receives from Jesus in Revelation is, it's going to be hard, times are difficult, but you will make it. Just keep pushing in, keep following after uh, God as we do this. Now, as I put those out there and we've walked through just that section really quick, what questions do you have about this so far? Anybody got any questions? All right, I'll keep going. Oh, say that again. Ephesians. Ephesians? Yeah. Right over here. He's written by Paul. Okay. Yep, right, right over here, written by Paul. So in this little section there between in the middle of Galatians and Philippians. Okay, Absolutely. Hey, good. Charlie, you you need to keep me straight, brother. Always. Always. <laughs> Always. Let me show you this, this slide as well, which is a little bit different. This is going to show us what the New Testament books uh, by word count is. So if you're to think through this, um, if you would think what is the longest book in the New Testament, what would it be? Let me sh show you kind of uh, what we're looking at here. But this is, these are our books. Luke is the longest book by far with 19,482 words, okay? Um, I don't know about your doctor. A lot of times my doctor, I don't feel like he says a lot. I feel like he comes in and says, take two of these and buy, and he's out to the next person, right? Not this doctor. He's going to talk a long time 
Luke is the longest book in the New Testament by 19,482 words. The next longest book, guess what it is? It's Acts. It was also written by who? <laughs> yeah, Luke. So, so here we go. We find that Luke is getting in his word count. Okay, so Acts is the next longest, followed by Matthew, John, and Mark. So that makes sense. The four Gospels and the narrative uh, book of Acts are the uh, five longest books, followed by Revelation. And then we start seeing Paul's, how his letters are coming together. You see this, right? Um, we see Romans and 1 Corinthians. And then Hebrews is next, 2 Corinthians, uh, Ephesians, Galatians, 1 John, James, 1 Peter, uh, Philippians, 1 Timothy, Colossians, um, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, 2 Peter, uh, 2 Thessalonians, Titus, Jude, Philemon, 2 John, and 3 John. So that 3 John there is only 219 words, right? Uh, and so when that these are actually from the Greek text of how many words this is, okay? And so this is kind of the original of what the actual words are. But so once again, Luke is in there with a whole lot of words, and you see some of these other uh, books that not so much. So you can notice here uh, as well, out of these top five, Mark is the shortest book. Luke is the longest gospel book. Um, and then once again, Revelation is the longest letter followed by Romans. Um, now, let me show you one other kind of way to look at this. This is word count by author, okay? Um, so if you think about all those things, like which author would comprise the majority of the New Testament, if Luke wrote Luke and Acts number one and two, you kind of assume that he would be that first place. So Luke writes a huge percentage of the New Testament at 37,932 words, which author do you think is probably the next most wordy in the New Testament? You might want to take a guess? Paul. Oh, that's right. So most people would think Paul would actually be at the top of the list because he wrote more books than anybody. But Luke's two books outweigh Paul's words by about 5,500 words there. So he, uh, Paul is next in line, uh, followed by... John, who wrote five books, right? Revelation and John put him up there, and first, second, and third John. Uh, but we start seeing these books then go really quick uh, down further. Matthew is at 18,000 words, uh, Mark is at 11,000 words, uh, and then the unknown author of Hebrews is at about 4,009. Uh, we see that Peter, the Apostle Peter, right, this leader of the early church, he's 2,783 words. Um, we've got James at 1,742, and we got Jude at 461, okay? So in the New Testament, you only have nine authors out of 27 books. Luke writes two of them, has a huge percentage of the New Testament. Uh, Paul is next, and then John, and, and on from there, it's, it's people who were just writing uh, one book or in, in this situation like Peter, two smaller books. So you see how these kind of work together, right, about how they're in different space. Now, let me show you this, the New Testament author percentage. Just This will make a little sense here to you. But if you look at Luke, he wrote 27% of the New Testament, okay? 27% of the entire New Testament goes to Luke's pen. Paul is 23% of the New Testament. John has 20% of the New Testament. And then from there on, it's basically like these people who have just individual books like Matthew at 13, Mark at 8%. But you see here that um, Luke, Paul, and John are a significant, significant, over 50% of the entire entirety of the New Testament words compiled there. So I'll, I'll say this to you that, um, you know, if you, especially if you look at something here, if, if, if this is Luke here, this is John here, this is Matthew here, this is Mark. One of the things that you're going to notice is that um, a lot of times people will say, what's the first book we should start reading uh, for a new believer? I would always say it kind of depends on the personality. <laughs> um, the person who's very analytical and likes detail, they need to go to Luke. For that person who likes to get to the point and just follow the action, they probably need to go to Mark. It just kind of depends. Uh, but there's each have a unique perspective on this. Now, I want to show you this next little slide and uh, make sure that I can get everybody here to see this. Okay, 
Um, as we're looking at this, at, at this section here, I want to look at the order of your, um, in your Bible here. This is the order of the way the table of contents comes through, starting in Matthew, going all the way down to Revelation. So this is what would happen in your table of contents. Um, now, once again, if you look at how this is structured together, you will notice Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, Acts is once again is that last book in the narrative portion. Romans all the way down to Second Thessalonians, letters written to churches. First Timothy down through Philemon, um, letters written to individuals and leaders. Hebrews through Jude are written to groups uh, of different people by different authors. And then there's the book of Revelation. Now I want to show you, um, if that's the order in which they're in, let me show you the order in which I think that they probably were written. Okay. Um, I think that this is probably the order in which that the um, books were written in. You could, I, a, lot, a lot of these you can debate, but this is pretty close to it. So on the far right side, you see that I have 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. The entire New Testament was written around in that timeline. So Jesus was crucified somewhere between year 33 to 37, depending upon when you date his birth. And so you look at these letters, and some of these letters are written very closely after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some of the Gospels, though, if you notice this, look at this. Um, most of us would think that probably Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written before uh, any, anything else, uh, and yet the letters are some of the first things that are written. So we've got James and Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then you have the book of Mark. Um, and, and so, and it goes on from there, but this, once again, there's, if, if you look at the book of James at the very top, this is how I will see people say that they will date James. They'll go, it might be around 40 to 45, might be 52. You're kind of taking some guesses around it. They'll, they'll date Luke according to how he would talk about certain things going on in the culture. And they'd say, okay, well, historically, that didn't happen until this date. So we think it happened beforehand. Um, they can date 2 Timothy near Paul's death. They will notice also uh, about John's life and when he wrote. So let me point this out to you real quick. If you look at the Gospels, look at them. They're kind of and now highlighted in an orange for you. And if you see this, you see the way that I have these dated is Mark, Matthew, Luke, and then John. What do you notice about him? Way down the line, okay? Way, way down the line. So Mark, Matthew, and Luke, I believe, um, are some of the, obviously, the earlier ones. But I think that Mark was the first gospel written, and here's why. Sometimes you find Mark and Matthew almost verbatim saying the same things. Mark got all of his insight from the Apostle Peter, who was kind of the leader of the early church and back in those days. And it almost seems like um, if, if Matthew wrote first, imagine he wrote a story. Remember how we talked about if there was a car wreck right outside the church, if someone were to report on it. If Matthew was super, super descriptive of it, talked about how the, the light changed and how this car swerved and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden it's almost word for word. Then you go down to the book of Mark. All it says is there was a car crash. It was just it was real to the point. Most people think that it would make a lot more sense for Mark to write um, his gospel. And then Matthew would kind of expound on some of the details, fill in some gaps that Mark left out. It doesn't seem like Matthew would have written and then Mark took things out of Matthew. It seems more common that Matthew would have taken things from Mark and expanded upon them. Because especially Matthew writes about the transfiguration of Jesus. And for you Bible scholars out there, you know this. There was only three people who were with Jesus when the transfiguration happened. That was Peter, James, and John. And Mark got all of his information from Peter. So most likely, Matthew may have heard about it, but he's writing from Mark, who's really kind of the scribe of Peter. 
So I believe that Mark wrote his gospel first, Matthew next, Luke sometime. I think probably Mark and Matthew were in the 50s, Luke's probably in the 60s. And then what do you notice about John down here? Way down here, possibly in the 70s. Some people even date it maybe even later to uh, into the um, early 80s. I'll probably say early to mid 70s. Um, why would John write a gospel this later? Like if you want to go on the book circuit, you should have done it way up here with these guys. I think these three books are called the synoptic gospels because they're very similar in nature. But then literally decades later, John writes his gospel and it reads very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke because I think he had read those gospel accounts for a very long time. Uh, and then he also thought, well, there's some things that you guys didn't write and, and he, he left out and he wanted to include. And so he does that, but he does that much later in his life. This next slide will show you a uh, link of Paul's letters written there in blue. And as I mentioned about the uh, letter of Galatians, I believe that that was written as one of the first letters uh, because it was really Paul just kind of getting on the scene here. And he expresses his frustration with church leadership not allowing uh, ethnic people to come into the church without first having to become Jewish. And so he calls them out and goes at them. Um, he has some work with the Thessalonican church there, uh, the Corinthian church there, Romans, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. These pastoral letters written, once again, closer to the end of his life. And you can tell that by nature. It's as almost as if he's passing the baton to these guys. Now, once again, this is not a hard and fast list. Uh, there can be some people who would might switch Colossians or Philippians or Galatians or James, but these are pretty good, um, accurate things is how you would read of when you would find a manuscript, what are they talking about, what's going on in the church's life. Um, and then also uh, highlight this slide, John's books. You see John didn't, somebody would finally convince him to write much later in his life, okay? So John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation are most likely, I believe, the, the last five books written in the New Testament. So John writes his gospel. It starts circulating. A lot of people benefit from it. And then he starts writing to people who are struggling in their faith to hold fast. I know times are getting difficult, but here's now he's an older man, and he's able to speak to some of these younger in the faith to say, continue to hold on. And Second John and Third John, he says, be careful about not following sound doctrine. And then Revelation at the end of his life telling people to make sure that they're holding fast because Christ is coming. So if you look at that, once again, you kind of realize that if you read the New Testament just straight through, um, you may not get all the insights of how all this stuff goes. And one of the things that I have really encouraged people to do, if you've never done this, uh, is to read through the Bible uh, in a chronological story plan. So a chronological story plan, what is different about this? is that you can actually go on and read the Bible book by book so that you can see it uh, in such a way that you would read. Um, while these are the way that they're dated, if you read it chronologically and how they're put together, you'll start reading like First um, Thessalonians before Hebrews, and it helps you kind of navigate through what's going on as an entire culture during that time. Um, let me give these to you here real quick as well uh, as a Bible overview, just as a thing. The first section in the entire Bible, if we go all the way out, is some, a section called the law. And this is there in your notes for you. But it's Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's five books that are put together. It shows us God's creation and also the law in general. Um, then there's this history section that is Joshua through Esther. Okay, Joshua through Esther, which are 12 books. Um, then there's a poetry section, which is Job through Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. There's five books that are contained there laid out. Then there's a section called Prophecy, which is Isaiah through Malachi. There are 17 books, major prophets and minor prophets. Um, five is the Gospels. Once again, Matthew, John. There are four books. The six is Narrative of Acts. Seven is the Epistles, Romans through Jude, which is 21 books, and then finally that eighth section of prophecy is Revelation, which is one book. So one of the things that you, you got to really line in here as well is that there is a law section that says God's standard and how he has made us and he has the rights over us. 
Then there comes in this history section, which really shows how these people up here, or these people in this section, cannot keep what was written in this law. So the law is given to these people, um, and they are really trying their hardest, right, to keep it. And then history comes along and reveals to them throughout all these individuals, they can't keep that law very well. Poetry section is given to them to be able to really tell, like, what does this look like for those who are living according to God's law? And then prophecy is speaking about a coming Messiah and about the coming days of how um, God's man, God's Messiah is going to come in and change absolutely everything, right? And, and so then we get to the Gospels and we see the story of Christ. Uh, narrative is this portion of the disciples continuing to take the mission of Jesus to the nations. The epistles are Paul and different ones writing letters to all the church, trying to make sense of how to be believers in this world. And then eighth is that prophecy section, which is Revelation speaking about when Christ comes again. And so if we look at that, let me go from there. Oh, I should have taken that out here. Um, let me show you this next section. Um, the Old Testament is what would be called uh, preparing for Christ, okay? So if we look at this, the Old Testament is, I believe, really preparing for Christ. All the way from the law, history, poetry, and prophets, it was preparing the way for Christ. You get then to the Gospels, and you get to the arrival of Christ. Here is the moment we have all been waiting for to see Jesus on display and when he comes, everything changes. Next, you have the Acts and Epistles, which is really the continuation of Christ, where he continues on, uh, the, the disciples continue the work of Christ. And then the book of Revelation, honestly, is the anticipation for Christ. He is saying it. We're waiting for him to come back. And so if you see this first section is preparing for Christ to come, then he came here. Guess what the Acts and Epistles really are? It is in the same way that if we look at it, this preparing, moving all this stuff around, I don't know how much y'all can see, but this preparing for Christ, and then really this in continuation, um, we are seeing that in the Gospels, we have the arrival of Christ, and in Revelation, we are anticipating, guess what, his, his second arrival, right? So, so the Old Testament is really preparing us for the, the first coming of Christ, and the Acts and Epistles are really uh, preparing the church for the second coming of Christ. And, and so with this, there is a um, beautiful way to, to see how the Old Testament and the whole New Testament comes together in this. Now, let me show you um, this just as a quick reminder. When we did um, about a year or so ago, we started going through an Old Testament overview. And um, this isn't in your notes, but this is just because I, I know some of you just know it. And I don't even have to remind you of it because you're just that smart. But um, my goal, whenever we do something like this, is to honestly, I want to see how God um, put the Bible together. So a lot of times when I took Old Testament survey or New Testament survey um, in um, seminary or college, a lot of times what I would see is I would under, I would know for a test, well, this is when Genesis was probably written, and I know who wrote it, and I can memorize those things, but I didn't understand the true message of the Bible. And so what I, we did uh, as a church is that we went through um, 15 words in the Old Testament that if you know these 15 words, you may not know when Esther was written, but you will know the overarching narrative of the Old Testament. And then what we're going to do is we're going to follow that same type of template and do that in the New Testament. So let me just, I'm going to review these um, and just show you what these Old Testament are really quick. But if you were to really sum up the Old Testament, it starts with creation, how God created the heavens and the earth, and he is responsible for it all. And then there comes up a fall where Adam and Eve decide to um, disobey and rebel against God. Uh, and, and then there comes up this flood where sin escalates so much to a flood uh, all, that happens and Noah and his family are saved. Um, and then after that point, God starts a covenant with a guy by the name of Abraham. And he says, there's going to be somebody who comes from your family who's going to change absolutely everything. And, and through that family of Abraham, Abraham has Isaac and Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob has a bunch of kids. And one of those kids is a kid by the name of Joseph who is placed in the nation of Egypt, which was the strongest nation in the world at that time. 
and he's put there in second in command to bring all of the nation of Israel into Egypt to show God's power. But once those people are in Egypt, they need to have an exodus. They need to exit out of that place so that God can show that he is stronger than Pharaoh and mightier than any other God out there. As they're finally rescued from the hands of Pharaoh and they go out on their way, God gives them commandments. Notice this. He gives them commandments after he saved them, not before, okay? He saves them, and then he gives them commandments to live by. Don't ever get that order messed up, or else you will really uh, get confused on how you're to follow Christ in this world. So he, he rescues them, he saves them, and then he gives them commandments to live by. But if you've ever read the Old Testament, you realize this. They did not follow those commandments so well. Uh, which means that they wandered in the wilderness for a very long time, actually 40 years trying to get to the promised land. And after many attesting and trying and a generation really dying out, they finally arrive at a place called Canaan, which is the promised land, a land flowing of milk and honey. And they have everything they could ever ask for and more. Once they get there, they get into a cycle of sin that God would send judges to come alongside and help them out. They kept getting in all kinds of problems because they kept following after idols. Eventually, there is a rejection that takes place of where the people say that they want a king like all the other nations uh, because God isn't enough for them. And so uh, they get King Saul, which is the king that they asked for, but not the king that they needed. And after they learn that hard lesson from the king of Saul, there is a kingdom that's established under the leadership of David and Solomon. And the nation of Israel rises to a great, um, just grandeur that it's never ever come to after this point. Because as soon as they get there, and it seems like, man, and now this is everything God ever said it was going to be, uh, because of Solomon and David's disobedience, there's a lot of stuff that takes place. There's actually division, and Israel divides between Israel and Judah, there's a civil war of sorts, and the nation gets divided. The people are in dismay. And finally, God warns through the prophets that hard times are coming and they don't listen. But eventually, an exile takes place where God's people are taken out of Canaan uh, and they are exiled out. In the same way they were taken out of Eden and exiled out, they are exiled out yet again. Uh, and then finally, after 70 years and praying, there's a remnant that returns back to Israel so they can restart again. And that's where you end up in the Old Testament. And the reason I'm showing you this is if you can if you can do what I just did really quick, it took me about four minutes to do, 15 keywords, you got the Old Testament picture. Now, I know I didn't get into Job and I didn't say, oh, and by the way, uh, Esther married this guy and whatnot, but you get the big picture. And then all of a sudden you can start putting all the different pieces in there. We're going to do that with the New Testament. So for the next few weeks, I'm going to give you 15 keywords that if you know these keywords, right, you may not know exactly if someone ever asked you, now, what year was the book of Philemon written in? You may not have that. But I will tell you this. I would much rather you have the ability to summarize the New Testament than give me some details about some of the more minor uh, issues in the New Testament. So I'm going to walk through these um, in the last two minutes, that three minutes that we've got here. And then in the weeks to come, we're going to unpack these and you are going to be a New Testament scholar by the time this is over with, I believe it. So the first one is incarnation. This is the picture of that Jesus came, uh, God in the flesh. He came as a, a baby uh, and was born of a virgin and came in and did not try to solve earth's problem from heaven. He left heaven and came down as a man to get into our mess and to fix it. Um, then there was a season of preparation of his own self, of him growing up, but also the preparation ministry of John the Baptist, as some would kind of see the conclusion of that Old Testament prophetic nature. John the Baptist clears the path, prepares the way. Jesus grows up in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And then finally, his ministry begins. And that three-year span changed our entire world there. And so we're going to look at the ministry of Jesus and how it was compiled and all the different things that he did in those three years. As part of that ministry, there's a huge component we have to address, and that is the issue of disciples. He called 12 men to himself and also speaking about how he put them together uh, really sort of speaks to really how we're supposed to, I think, do ministry and discipleship now so we've got to unpack what Jesus did in the area of discipleship. Number five is something called associations, because in addition to these disciples, we have these other groups of characters that really um, 
kind of, I don't know, align a lot of what Jesus' life were. And they were the uh, sinners and the religious folks, okay? These two associations. So sinners love Jesus. The religious folks couldn't stand him. And these two groups of people, we have to understand if we're going to understand the New Testament, especially the life of Christ. We finally get to the major sixth point, which is crucifixion, uh, which is obviously we just got through celebrating Passion Week. Uh, but we're going to look at the crucifixion and how the Gospels prepared that and the the, um, the magnitude of what took place there. And then also there's something else that happened is that while Friday happened, Sunday came, right? That there's Resurrection Sunday that Jesus got up from the grave. And so we're going to unpack that and talk about how that specifically should change our lives day in and day out now. We get to number eight is the commission where Jesus turns and makes those disciples to go and take the gospel to all nations and how that really plays out and really is the marching orders for us now. Um, and there really is no other secondary issue that that's the issue. Make disciples. Finally, we get to uh, point number nine, which is Pentecost, which is the, the day that the Holy Spirit came down and empowered um, the disciples to go speak in different languages and share the gospel. And they, enjoyed the power of the Holy Spirit, um, and, and began to continue the ministry of Jesus uh, in an amazing, amazing way. As a result of that, so many things were happening is that persecution took place in the early church, and that persecution did something that Jesus was trying to do with number eight. Jesus was saying, there's a commission, I want to send you out, and they kept sitting around, so eventually he let the persecution drive them out. Finally, they started moving and getting to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth based on persecution that a guy by the name of Saul started out, which brings us to point number 11, Damascus. Um, Saul met Jesus on the Damascus road and was changed to Paul. He was blinded by the light, changed by the gospel, and now the world itself is different because of it. Uh, and so we're going to uh, identify what happened on that day and help explain the story of Paul and how critical that is to our understanding of the New Testament. Point number two is counsel, and this is a moment that happens, but this is symbolic of a major issue. There was something called the Jerusalem Council that's mentioned in the book of Acts, where the early church is trying to figure out how do we let Gentiles into the family and not have to make them go through all these hoops. That was the deal. They wanted to make, you have to be Jewish and then you can be Christian, and the council finally got together. This is the first church business meeting, and they put it all on the table. They figured it out, and they said, okay, here's on out. This is the gospel. There's nothing else to add to it, and they moved from there with a type of gospel vigor that was just unmatched. Point number 13 is church. Uh, what does that gathering mean, that ecclesia, those small churches that uh, Paul and these different ones started to plant and just ascend everywhere, and, and what happened as a result of it? Uh, and then 14 is instructions. These are all these epistles, these letters that as these guys are writing, because as they're putting these churches together, they're finding out these churches sometimes are not always doing the best of things. And so they're trying to make sure that everybody's got the instructions about what they need to believe and how they need to behave. And then number 15 is recreation. And this is the promise of the book of Revelation about how one day he's going to make all things new and uh, he's coming back on a rescue mission. And so these 15 points, this is going to be kind of our driving uh, thing for the next few months here. So we're going to look at these 15, unpack them and see how they all pile together in the New Testament. And then honestly, if, if someone were to ask me, how do you summarize the New Testament? I put these 15 words down on a, on a sheet of paper and then I just start walking through them together uh, in the same way that I do the Old Testament there. So there is our uh, New Testament survey class for the night. So hopefully that has helped you at least get us started on that. Um, what I'll do next week is that I'm going to continue to give you guys um, what you need and give you a handout. And, uh, and we'll, we'll use the same type of Zoom link. And the main reason we're just doing this kind of password thing is to make sure that we don't have somebody jumping in here that doesn't need to be in here or, or sharing stuff on here that doesn't need to be shared and that kind of thing. But you guys have been awesome uh, in uh, continuing to make sure that we're, we're uh, going through this. And so I'm just so thankful that you took your time. I know how so many of you had so many other things on the calendar tonight that you were just dying to get to you know, kind of appointments and places you wanted to go, but uh, I'm glad that you got stuck in with me at least. So um, what I'll do is I'm going to pray for us. Um, and uh, is, is there, are there any questions that I have missed? Anything we need to jump into?
Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. All right. All right. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for our church family. Thank you, God, for what you're teaching us. Thank you for how you continue to show yourself strong in our lives. Thank you that you put the New Testament together to help us to know you more and to take your message to the nations uh, so that people would be changed by your gospel. And so, Lord, we just want to be people as in our gospel groups, as we're studying the New Testament and as we're uh, preaching through a book and studying it together and having a Bible reading plan. This is a great time for us just to make sure we really understand how you put this part of our faith here together uh, in the Bible. So, God, we thank you so much for it. Uh, help us continue to push in and to learn more about it, to know your truths, uh, so that not only can we grow in our faith, but also help others out as well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Miss you, fellas. Love you. All right. Uh, Thank y'all for tuning in tonight. Bye. Bye. Good to see everybody. You too.